0: All podcasters know the best way to grow your show is through word of mouth. We created a referral link that makes it easy to share the podcast by text, email, or DM to anyone you know who could use a little dose of inspiration for civic engagement and our collective future. Follow the link in our show notes to go to our referral page. You can easily share a unique referral code directly from there. Once you share our show with five friends who download the podcast, I'll send you a handwritten thank you note and a Future Hindsight button to thank you for your support. If you share it with 10 friends who download an episode, I'll send you a branded Future Hindsight Moleskine notebook. Yup, a real Moleskine notebook with our logo on it. Thank you for spreading the word and thank you for listening. Welcome to Future Hindsight. I'm your host, Mila Atmos. Each week I speak with citizen changemakers who spark civic engagement in our society. Our guest today is Richard Rothstein. He's a journalist, historian, and author of The Color of Law, A Forgotten History of How Our Government Segregated America. It's a deeply researched book that fully exposes the manner in which government actively and systematically segregated housing by race and should be mandatory reading for all Americans. This episode explains why we have such deep disparities in income and wealth along racial lines and hopefully informs the way you think about housing segregation.
1: We have a myth that the reason we're segregated in every metropolitan area of this country is because of private activity. It's not just income differences. We think it was because private actors like banks and real estate agencies and developers wouldn't sell to African-Americans or maybe bigoted white homeowners and landlords wouldn't rent to them. The reality is that the reason we are segregated is because of a set of racially explicit federal, state, and local policies They were designed to ensure that African-Americans and whites could not live near one another in any metropolitan area of the country.
0: We discussed the intricate network of discriminatory public policies in all aspects of life well beyond housing, the continued marginalization of African-American communities today, and a new movement to redress racial segregation. Let's listen in. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Your book provides indisputable proof that African-Americans have been the subject of active discrimination by the government through public policy in all manners of life, housing, work, education. You prove that the myth of de facto segregation in housing, that African-Americans are too poor to live in middle-income neighborhoods, is actually de jure segregation. What exactly is de jure segregation?
1: We have a myth that the reason we're segregated in every metropolitan area of this country is because of private activity. It's not just income differences. We think it was because private actors like banks and real estate agencies and developers wouldn't sell to African-Americans or maybe bigoted white homeowners and landlords wouldn't rent to them. I think the most common aspect of this myth is that people just like to live with each other, of the same race. It's self-choice. We call it de facto segregation, as you mentioned. The reality is that the reason we are segregated is because of a set of racially explicit federal, state, and local policies that were designed to ensure that African Americans and whites could not live near one another in any metropolitan area of the country. The Supreme Court has uh, endorsed the myth of de facto segregation. It takes the position that under the Constitution, The government is prohibited from doing anything explicit to remedy something that government didn't create. If government created it, it would be a civil rights violation. We call that de jure segregation. But if government didn't create it, de facto segregation, it happened naturally, it happened by accident, it can only unhappen by an accident. Uh, The Supreme Court has stated this explicitly in a number of decisions. And so it's very important that Americans understand an accurate history of how the government created segregation, not private action, not private bigotry, because once we understand that, then we understand that that we have an obligation as American citizens under our constitution to remedy it.
0: What surprised me the most when I read your book was how the segregation really was codified In the 1920s, 30s, through the New Deal and after World War II. Can you explain the history of how it started right after Reconstruction ended, but really took hold with proper public policies?
1: Let me focus on the most powerful policy that the federal government implemented. And one of the things that stunned me the most, let me say, in writing this book was how many federal, state, local policies determine the racial landscape that we have today. But the most powerful policy the federal government followed was in the New Deal and the Fair Deal of President Truman afterwards. It was a policy to suburbanize the entire white working class and middle class populations into single family homes in all white suburbs from which African-Americans were excluded. At the time, in the mid 20th century, We were not a suburban country. The only people living in suburbs outside central cities were the affluent. Working class, middle class families, black and white, were living in urban areas that were much more integrated than they are today for the simple reason that we were a manufacturing economy. Uh, Factories had to be located in the central district near deep water ports or railroad terminals. So if you had a, a neighborhood that had factories in it and workers who were both black and white they all live relatively close uh, to those factories in order to be able to walk to work in the post-world war ii period in particular the federal government began a program to suburbanize the whites in that integrated downtown population into single family homes in all white suburbs and prohibit african americans from doing so these Suburbs that the government created exist in every metropolitan area. Perhaps the most famous of them is Levittown, east of New York City, but they exist everywhere in the country. Los Angeles, uh, places like Lakewood near Long Beach or um, Westchester, west of the city, or Panorama City and San Fernando Valley. The developers of places like this, Levitt, for example, and Levittown could never have assembled the capital to build these giant suburbs on their own. Levittown was 17,000 homes in one place. No bank would be crazy enough to lend Levitt the money to do that kind of thing. The banks didn't think this was a feasible idea. They didn't think anybody was gonna live in the suburbs. The only way that Levitt could assemble the capital to buy the land, build these homes, was to go to the Federal Housing Administration and Veterans Administration, submit his plans for the project, including A commitment never to sell a home to an African-American. The FHA and VA even required Levitt and developers elsewhere in the country to include a clause in the deed of every home prohibiting resale to African-Americans or rental to African-Americans. This was an explicit racial requirement of the federal government. It was written out in the federal policy manual of the uh, Federal Housing Administration. It was called the Underwriting Manual. It was distributed to appraisers all over the country whose job it was to assess the applications of builders, developers to build these suburbs and recommend or not recommend them for federal bank guarantees, which is the only way they could go ahead and build them. The manual went so far as to say that you couldn't even recommend for a federal bank guarantee in all white development if it was going to be located near where African Americans were living. Because in the words of the manual, that would run the risk of infiltration by inharmonious racial groups. That's what the Federal Manual said. This notion of de facto segregation is utter nonsense. With this policy of the Federal Housing and Veterans Administration, modest homes were created in every metropolitan area of the country. At the time, for returning war veterans, primarily, black and white, who could have afforded them, sold for about $8,000 a piece, and today that's $100,000. Returning war veterans required no down payment. Anybody with a job in the post-war economy, a working class job, black or white could have afforded those homes, but only whites were permitted to buy them. Today, those homes no longer sell for $100,000 in any of these suburbs. Uh, They range from $300,000, $400,000, $500,000 in places like Levittown, places in California, they sell for a million dollars or more. Uh, The white families who were subsidized by the Federal Housing and Veterans Administrations to uh, buy these homes, gained over the next few generations equity, uh, wealth from the appreciation and the value of their homes. They use that wealth to send their children to college. They use it to perhaps take care of emergencies, maybe medical or temporary unemployment. They use it to subsidize their retirements, and they use it to bequeath wealth to their children and grandchildren. African-Americans returning war veterans who could easily have afforded to purchase these homes, were not permitted to participate in this wealth-generating program. The result is that today, African-American family incomes are about 60% of white incomes. African-American household wealth is only about 5% of white household wealth. And that enormous disparity is the direct consequence of unconstitutional de jure segregation created by the federal government. And its effects endure to this day because that wealth gap is what uh, creates much of the racial inequality uh, that we have in this country. It's what locks African Americans into less resourced neighborhoods. It contributes to everything from the achievement gap in schools, to health disparities between blacks and whites, to mass incarceration of African Americans because so many young men without access to good jobs or the transportation to get to them are locked into single neighborhoods without opportunity. So the, the unconstitutional policies of the federal government determine much of the racial inequality that we have today. This policy that I just described was supplemented by many, many others, both of the state and local governments, to create a network of policies of segregation that create our racial landscape.
0: Yes, it's really astounding just how racist these policies have been for so many decades and how willingly everybody participated, both at the government level, but also by white communities. One question I had when I was reading the book was, why is it that the government wanted to actually help whites build assets?
1: Well, I don't think that uh, the federal government knew or anybody knew for that matter that this program was going to build assets. When the, these people bought these suburban homes for, as I say in today's money, $100,000, they had no idea that these neighborhoods were going to appreciate to the extent that they have. So this wasn't an asset building program. This was a program to solve a housing crisis in the post-World War II period. We had millions of returning war veterans coming home needing housing, but the federal government solved this housing crisis only for whites. And so I think the real question is, why did they want to solve it only for whites? And that's because we have never addressed in this country the legacies of slavery and Jim Crow. But the um, federal uh, government at that time, a Democratic administration, was a segregationist party. And I don't mean by that just Southern Democrats. It was throughout a segregationist party, North and South. In 1913, Woodrow Wilson took office as president of the United States as the first Southern Democrat to be elected to the presidency since the Civil War. He was a southerner and a segregationist. He embarked on a program to segregate the federal civil service. It was an integrated civil service before then. What the Wilson administration did in federal departments placed curtains in federal office uh, buildings to separate black and white workers, fired black civil servants if they happened to be in supervisory positions because African-Americans were no longer permitted to supervise whites, create separate washrooms for African-Americans in basements of federal office buildings. Now, the federal civil service wasn't big in those days, but one of the biggest departments in the federal government at that time was the Navy Department. The assistant secretary of the Navy in 1913 was Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Who was charged with the responsibility of segregating the Navy Department in the Wilson administration? Now, I'm not suggesting that this was Roosevelt's idea, but I am saying he didn't oppose it. And this was the environment of the Democratic Party in which he matured, grew up. So it was a segregationist party, and it imposed segregation on its housing program because it had never really confronted the legacies of slavery or Jim Crow and had never uh, determined to try to um, redress it.
0: Yes, actually, you also mentioned in the book how we think about race relations in the United States as steadily improving over time. But clearly, that is totally inaccurate. In fact, it went way worse before it got better. And even if it got better, if there was a Supreme Court decision that struck down discriminatory laws, they would be toothless, there would be no enforcement, and African Americans were always left holding the bag. They even tried over and over again to buy houses in white neighborhoods and then they would be firebombed or their windows would be pelted or even be killed. And sometimes these owners would be arrested as opposed to the perpetrators of the crimes. And I thought, you know, it just is so crazy that we misunderstand segregation so much (laughs) you know we have this totally skewed idea of why we're segregated you also talk about how ghettos came together as a result i feel like we should talk about how they're subject to higher rents how they can't get mortgages and how predatory landlords don't provide services and it just becomes a downward spiral
1: Let me go back for a minute to the comment you just made. Uh, These were not isolated instances of police protected mob violence to drive African Americans out of homes that they had legitimately purchased or rented in previously all white neighborhoods in the uh, mid 20th century. There were hundreds and hundreds of cases of these protected by the police sometimes uh, led and organized by police, every one of them where the police was involved was a violation of the 14th Amendment to the Constitution. This was state action. This was not the de facto segregation when the police were doing this. You mentioned the case where a uh, white homeowner had an African-American friend in Louisville, Kentucky. He bought a second home in his all white suburb and sold it to his African-American friend. When the African-American friend and family moved into that home, a police protected mob dynamited and firebombed the home. And when the riot was all over, the white homeowner was uh, arrested, tried, convicted, and jailed with a 15-year sentence for sedition, for having sold a home in a white neighborhood to a black family. So this is an unconstitutional system that we have created. Now, so far as uh, the less adequate conditions that you were referring to in black neighborhoods, overcrowding, higher rents. This is also a result of, of federal policy. It's kind of the opposite of the subsidization of white families to move to suburbs. The federal government also had a policy of failing to ensure mortgages for African-Americans in existing black urban neighborhoods. It was called redlining. In the 1930s, the federal government drew maps of every metropolitan area in the country. It colored red the areas where it was too risky in the government's view to insure mortgages for families. And neighborhoods were colored red if they had uh, African Americans living in them. And they were colored yellow if they had African Americans living nearby. The result was that African Americans couldn't get the kinds of mortgages for their homes even in black neighborhoods that whites were able to get in white neighborhoods. Speculators came in when African Americans couldn't get real mortgages. They sold the homes on contract, like the installment plan. If you buy something in the store and, and pay for it monthly and then collect it uh, when um, it's paid off, the um, speculators sold homes to African Americans and inflated prices on these plans. And if they ever mixed the payment, The homes were repossessed with the black families gaining no equity as they would have gained if they had a legitimate mortgage. So African-Americans could only afford homes even in African-American neighborhoods by subdividing them, renting them to other people, doubling, tripling up with relatives. City governments provided less adequate services, less adequate garbage collection, less adequate sewage, less adequate sidewalks in neighborhoods like this. They became slums. But this was all the product of government policy that was designed to deny African Americans the kinds of resources that the government provided to white families.
0: Are you looking for a new podcast that talks about the issues of the day? We recommend you check out The Three Righteous Mamas, where three all-American moms who are Latina, Muslim, and queer speak with some of the biggest change makers and thought leaders in our world these three mamas are on a mission to transform our country and celebrate their power and hope to build a better future for all of our children. There's no podcast quite like it, so check it out wherever you listen to podcasts. What surprised me about this was that the government didn't have the foresight to think that this was going to create problems for them, even in real time, you know, that they would have these Abjectly poor conditions for people that we live essentially side by side with. I mean, not exactly, but we have to commingle in society because we don't live in a vacuum. And also, this created so many problems at the workplace. Can you talk about how African Americans were excluded from unions, were turned away from jobs, even though there were jobs that needed to be filled, but really because they were the wrong color?
1: Yes. I would never suggest that the sole problem that African Americans face is the segregation of housing. Income policies also were followed that were unconstitutional, that were discriminatory. For example, the National Labor Relations Act adopted in the 1930s that permitted workers to organize unions that employers would have to recognize, the National Labor Relations Act permitted unions to be certified as the exclusive bargaining agents for their employees if they excluded African Americans from membership. There was an amendment attempted when the bill was being debated that would prohibit racial discrimination by unions that sought federal certification for exclusive bargaining rights. That amendment was defeated. And it wasn't until the 1960s that the National Labor Relations Board, for the first time, stopped certifying unions that uh, excluded African-Americans from membership. It wasn't until the 1970s that this was a consistent policy. The result was that African-Americans were denied access to the most uh, remunerative jobs in the post-war boom. They couldn't work in the construction trades because construction unions excluded African-Americans from membership. This is one of the causes of the ongoing impoverishment of the African-American community when the Social Security Act was first adopted. Occupations in which African-Americans predominated, uh, like agriculture, like uh, domestic work, were excluded from coverage. The same thing was true of the early minimum wage laws. They didn't apply to occupations where African-Americans predominated. Obviously, when people... uh, for generations are excluded from higher paying jobs. Their children are less advantaged as well and have more difficulty accessing better jobs even if those prohibitions are moved, even when unions were required to accept African Americans for membership in the 1970s. They had seniority provisions that meant that even if African Americans were hired, they were the first fired in any downturn. So these policies also were unconstitutional on the part of the federal government. They contribute to the uh, apartheid system that we have in this country today.
0: So I have a question about how the Great Recession, in part, is a legacy of segregation and redlining. How did banks take advantage of this?
1: Well, during the Great Recession that began really in, I guess, 2008, Additional policies were implemented mostly by the private sector, but with government supervision that reinforced segregation. Perhaps the best known of them is a uh, policy in the subprime mortgage sector of the housing industry. Banks and mortgage uh, originators pushed predatory lending policies on African-Americans in a way that was not done for white families. Typically, African-Americans in many communities were offered refinancing loans with uh, very, very high prepayment penalties and exploding interest rates. Uh, There were initially low teaser rates that were offered to families to refinance their homes. And then in the small print, a couple of years later, the interest rates exploded to very high rates. Families could no longer pay those rates. They uh, wound up foreclosing on their homes. The African-American home ownership rate declined precipitously and is still at a, a lower level than it was prior to that time. These were racially explicit policies that were followed by federally supervised banks and savings and loans. Testimony in courts showed that the banks sent mortgage salespeople to black churches on Sunday. They considered a uh, African-Americans to be too unsophisticated to uh, read the small print in the the subprime loans that they were pushing. This was not done in white churches. There was no effort to market these kinds of uh, mortgage products to whites. And so this contributed to the uh, impoverishment of African-Americans to the decline in home ownership that resulted uh, during the uh, Great Recession.
0: Again, they continue to be punished and taken advantage of every way they turn. You make several public policy suggestions and point to some that are already working. Can you talk about how fair share works in New Jersey? In my mind, I thought that was maybe the most promising.
1: Well, we have policies all over the country that attempt in very, very small ways to redress this problem. but. Our problem of segregation goes far beyond low-income families. Working class, -class middle-class African-Americans also don't have access to the neighborhoods that they would have had access to had they been permitted to move into them, to purchase homes in them in the mid-20th century. The fair share program in New Jersey, not well enforced, but it has created some opportunities for low-income families, disproportionately African-American and Hispanic. To move to communities where they otherwise would not have been able to do so. But it doesn't provide any remedy for middle class, working class families who also can't afford to move to those communities. And African American middle class and working class families live in neighborhoods that may not be as poor as, as the low income segregated neighborhoods, but that have much higher poverty rates than white families of similar incomes have. We have other policies that are being implemented around the country, we have many communities that have adopted down payment assistance programs for first time home buyers, have mobility programs for low income families who have vouchers that permit them to rent housing in the higher opportunity communities. They're called section eight vouchers. They disproportionately reinforce segregation because mostly the only places they can be used are in low income segregated neighborhoods. But there are some communities that have adopted policies to enable those vouchers by enhancing them, by providing mobility counseling to uh, live in higher opportunity neighborhoods. The biggest federal program we have for low-income families, disproportionately African-American and Hispanic, is called the Low-Income Housing Tax Credit. It's a federal program that issues tax credits to uh, nonprofit developers to build housing for low-income families. That program reinforces segregation because mostly the only place that low income housing tax credit units are created in existing low income neighborhoods, reinforcing this segregation. But there are some places, some communities around the country that have undertaken a program to place at least some low income housing tax credit units in higher opportunity neighborhoods where families would have better access to jobs and transportation to get to them and schools that uh, don't concentrate uh, social and economic disadvantage, grocery stores that sell fresh food, cleaner air. So we have a a number of efforts to try to redress them, none of them on the scale to make a significant dent, but they all show us that something can be done if only we uh, make an effort to do so.
0: So in your mind, what would be an aggressive, really forward-looking policy that we should be implementing? We should be... Creating
1: an affirmative action program in housing that subsidizes African Americans to move to neighborhoods from which they were unconstitutionally excluded and which are now unaffordable to them. The problem is that we don't have a new civil rights movement that is demanding the implementation of these policies as the civil rights movement of the 1950s and 60s was in uh, demanding the implementation of desegregation of things like restaurants and buses and public facilities of all kinds. I am actually engaged with a a group of national civil rights and fair housing leaders to create something we call a new movement to redress racial segregation, whose role it will be to support local committees and communities all over the country to create campaigns in their local areas to adopt some of the kinds of policies that I mentioned. We were about to launch this national effort to create these local committees when the pandemic began. And we've put it on hold until social distancing is no longer required. But we plan to relaunch it soon. And hopefully, we will be able to stimulate committees and communities all over the country to take the kinds of steps that are necessary to redress this unconstitutional system of segregation that we have imposed on this country.
0: What do you think is possible under the Biden administration in terms of housing segregation?
1: Well, there are some things that can be done. But overall, the political support for undertaking the kinds of policies that I've described doesn't yet exist. That's why we need a new movement to redress racial segregation. Just like policies were not well known about desegregating public facilities in the 1960s, it wasn't until the civil rights movement made it uncomfortable to maintain those policies that they were actually changed. So I think that the Biden administration can take some very minor steps. It can, for example, uh, prohibit under the Fair Housing Act policies that don't mention race, but that reinforce segregation, like for example, the disproportionate placement of low-income housing tax credit units and low-income segregated neighborhoods reinforcing their segregation. But mostly, we need more public activity, more development of a political consensus around the need to redress segregation to create the political support for those policies which at present doesn't exist.
0: Looking into the future, what makes you hopeful? Oh, I'm
1: very hopeful. You know, as long as we thought this happened by accident, we only think it can unhappen by accident. Once we understand it was done by policy, it's very easy to develop the notion and to flesh it out that it can be undone by policy. We are now having a more accurate and passionate discussion about race than we ever have had before in American history. We had 20 million Americans participating in demonstrations this past summer and spring following the the murder of George Floyd in Minneapolis about Black Lives Matter. 95% of them were peaceful, nonviolent. Many, if not most of the participants in these demonstrations were white, something that's never before happened in uh, demonstrations about racial uh, injustice. So I'm very hopeful that we are developing an understanding of our constitutional obligation as citizens to redress this. And once we develop that understanding, then the next step is to begin to take action, to act on that understanding.
0: Agreed. Well, I hope that your new movement will take off and that we'll see more of you and more activism for desegregation. Thank you very much for being on Future Hindsight and congratulations on your book. Thank you very much. When I read this book, I felt like the scales fell off my eyes. I was most surprised by the lengths with which public policy at all levels of government went about segregation. Now that I understand the history better, it seems that we have to think and act big. For starters, we definitely do need a new civil rights type movement to rectify the longstanding injustices due to segregation. It's good news that the Biden administration has already issued a memorandum for the Secretary of Housing and Urban Development to task the department to end housing discrimination and to secure equal access to housing opportunity for all. And while support from the federal government to provide redress is absolutely necessary, everyday citizens like us must also provide political support. If you're interested in getting a notice from the new movement to redress racial segregation that Richard has started, send an email to Carrie at carri at nmrs.org. That's NMRRS, the new movement to redress racial segregation. Next week, our guest is Tamara Lee. She's assistant professor at the Rutgers School of Management and Labor Relations, whose teaching focuses on identity politics in the workplace and labor market discrimination. Traditionally in the United States, unions have taken what we call a colorblind approach to organizing and to servicing as union members. And what that means is that they've tended to primarily focus themselves on issues of class without acknowledging that class is also a racially coded system. And so if we try to act like there are no variances in our working class, those variances are going to recreate themselves in collective bargaining agreements. And so unions have to do that internal work of actually going, listen, these are the salient interest of all of the different types of workers that we have in our membership. And what is the best way to address those systemic issues? We talk about income and wealth inequality, innovation in labor unions, and redefining justice for our times. Until next time, stay engaged. I'm Mila Atmos.
1: Thank you for continuing to listen to Future Hindsight. Our executive producer is Mila Atmos. The audio producer is Peter Fedak. And our associate producers are Miriam Zumbul and Brooke Sayan. Be sure to listen to us on Apple Podcasts, futurehindsight.com, or wherever you enjoy podcasts every week. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.